AIP stands for autoimmune paleo. It's a way of eating that is designed especially to support gut health, to improve gut health, and to do that by eliminating some foods that are potentially inflammatory, potentially um, irritating to the gut, and by really emphasizing nutrient-dense foods. And this is particularly helpful for autoimmune conditions because there is such a key connection between the health of the gut and the health of the immune system. I'm Dr. Seth Osgood, the founder of Grassroots Functional Medicine. After personally struggling for years upon years with chronic health issues that traditional medicine and pharmaceuticals could not resolve, I finally found relief in true healing through a functional medicine approach. Since then, I've dedicated my life to helping patients around the world transform their health by getting to the root cause of symptoms and restoring their body's natural ability to heal. This experience has shown me that a true state of wellness often requires an integrated approach that brings in multiple disciplines and modalities. In this podcast, I will interview a variety of practitioners and health professionals to educate and empower you on the full spectrum of tools that are available to reclaim your health and vitality. If you are struggling with health challenges and you are not getting the answers or results you feel you deserve, or you simply want to optimize your health and take a proactive approach to wellness, this podcast is for you. And if you like this show and find it helpful, be sure to tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcast. So let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to the Grassroots Functional Medicine Podcast. I'm really excited about today's topic and today's guest. We are joined by our one and only Grassroots Functional Medicine nutritionist, Lily Hamp, and we're going to dive into the autoimmune paleo diet or the AIP diet. If you're struggling with inflammation or you've been diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, or maybe you have digestive imbalances that you just can't figure out, this is a podcast you really want to listen to because this dietary approach really can be a game changer when it comes to optimizing your health. So Lily is a functional nutrition therapy practitioner and lifestyle coach at Grassroots Functional Medicine. Lily is passionate about the power of real food to support the body's innate ability to heal. She believes that nourishing our bodies with nutrient-dense foods can be a profound source of joy and empowerment. Lily's primary goal is to inspire people to become excited about cooking, explore local and seasonal foods, and discover how nutrition can transform their health. And just so you guys know, this is the first episode on the AIP diet. We're going to do a subsequent episode in the future, uh, exploring more of the practical applications, whereas today we're jumping into the theory. So stay tuned, listen in. I think you're going to love this podcast. Let's dive in and get started. Well, good morning, Lily. Welcome to the Grassroots Functional Medicine Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on and I'm excited about today's topic. Today, we're learning all about the autoimmune paleo diet, which I know you are very well versed in. So again, thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, before we jump into the nitty gritty of what the AIP diet is about, do you mind giving us a little bit of a background about what your history is and what got you interested in the the wellness space and the nutrition space? Yeah, for sure. I think I've always had an interest in holistic health and nutrition. I remember even growing up as a kid, I would play around with recipes and experiment in the kitchen. And I think over time, that interest in food morphed into also an interest in the research of nutrition. 
but I still have a, a real love of cooking and the culinary side of, of nutrition and holistic health overall. Absolutely. Well, you do some amazing work, not only with nutrition and cooking, but also with mindfulness in, in that space as well. And we're just so glad to have you as part of our team. So, but let's jump into today's topic. The autoimmune paleo diet is something that we use quite often in our practice. It's not necessarily for everybody and it's not necessarily a lifelong uh, thing that people want to be on, but it's a great starting point and for, for different people in different situations. And we're going to talk all about that today. But uh, before we do, can you give us a little bit of a background on what is AIP or what is an autoimmune paleo diet? Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you said, AIP stands for autoimmune paleo. And so it's a way of eating that is designed especially to support gut health, to improve gut health, and to do that by eliminating some foods that are potentially inflammatory, potentially um, irritating to the gut, and by really, really emphasizing nutrient-dense foods. And this is particularly helpful for autoimmune conditions because there is such a key connection between the health of the gut and the health of the immune system. But for a lot of inflammatory conditions, this can be a really great starting place. And then, as you said, it's a baseline template from which you go through a, a reintroduction protocol of, in a systematic way, reintroducing some of those initially eliminated foods and figuring out which ones are going to work for your individual body. That's great. That's great. Now, you know, a lot of times we think of autoimmune paleo and we think, okay, you have to have an autoimmune condition for this to be effective. Is, is that true? Or who is an autoimmune paleo diet good for? What are, what are some of the benefits that people may see if they do adopt this protocol initially? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, certainly there is some research for specific autoimmune conditions and lots of people can tell you anecdotally that it has helped their autoimmune symptoms, but it can be helpful for a wide range of conditions and symptoms, even if they don't have that autoimmune diagnosis. So any sort of inflammatory condition is going to be helped by healing the gut, by improving uh, the gut health and the gut microbiome, especially digestive disorders. So people struggling with gas and bloating, constipation, diarrhea, uh, digestive pain, that can really be helped by eliminating some of these more gut irritating foods and focusing on gut healing. And then for people with who suspect they may have food sensitivities, an elimination diet like AIP is really helpful in those cases, especially for people who are coming in, they're already eating a pretty healthy diet, but they just think like there's some food here that I'm reacting to and I don't know what it is. Doing an elimination diet can help to uncover those food sensitivities, which are different than food allergies, right? Which people already know about something they react in, a, in an obvious way to. But a food sensitivity can be a food that you're eating on a daily basis and can't really tell that it is causing a reaction, but over time it can be contributing to inflammation. So doing a protocol like AIP is a really great way of learning to listen to your body, to get to know your body uh, in a better way and, and uncover some of those sensitivities. Absolutely. And then we, I know in the clinic, we do use food sensitivity testing and, and that can be helpful we talk to patients about the fact that it looks at 200 foods all at once to see if there is that, that immune reaction or that IgG 
sensitivity response. But what's beautiful about these elimination diets is the fact that it accounts for multiple immune reactions, right? It's not just IgG, it's not just IgE, it's not just IgA, or there's other ways the immune system can react to food. And sometimes it's an intolerance, sometimes it's immune mediated, sometimes it's related to other factors like enzyme deficiencies or, or inability to break down these foods. So really cutting it out and then introducing it back in truly is the gold standard. And that's what I love about AIP is it, it, it seems like you're eliminating a lot, but realistically, it's, it's not that bad. And we'll talk more about that today, but it really does cut out some of those main players that tend to be problematic for, for certain individuals. So nice. yeah, it, yeah. What was that? I think it's really powerful also for people to feel in their own bodies that they are reacting to a food rather than just seeing a list uh, of foods to avoid and saying, okay, someone's telling me to avoid this, to actually be able to experience the difference in their own body. I think that's so much more motivating when you, when you actually feel the difference. It's, it's absolutely true. And it's, it's cool to see that in patients, right? We see them, they, they go on this protocol or they don't think these foods were ever a problem. We introduce them and then it hits them like a ton of bricks and they're like, whoa, I didn't realize how horrible I was feeling. And, and you can't always get that from a test. So that's, that's, that's absolutely true. And, and just for those, for listeners out there who may not be familiar with what autoimmunity is, autoimmunity is an immune reaction against your own cells in your body. So some of the more common conditions that people get diagnosed with are things like celiac disease or lupus or multiple sclerosis, Sjogren's, dermatomyositis. There's a lot of autoimmune conditions that have been labeled out there. But really what we want to do as opposed to just finding that label and, and, and using medications to help with symptoms, we want to figure out what's driving that abnormal immune response. And that's where something like an autoimmune paleo diet can, can be really, really helpful in addition to all of the other things that you mentioned, which is absolutely right. I mean, these inflammatory conditions, how many people do we see now that have, you know, problems with fibromyalgia or they're diagnosed with chronic fatigue, or maybe they have cognitive decline or cardiovascular disease. I mean, these are all conditions that are affected by inflammation. So if we can minimize that through the food we put in our mouth, then wonderful things can happen. Absolutely. absolutely. So this, I, this autoimmune sounds great, right? We're going to use food to heal our body, which we're a big fan on, fan of, but I know a lot of people are not necessarily on that same page. Is there, for those people out there who are just science, scientists and really go based on research, and that's all they focus in on, is there actual science to support the use of an autoimmune paleo diet for some of these conditions we talked about? Yeah, that's a great question. And the exciting news is that in recent years, there have been clinical trials actually studying AIP. There have been several on using the autoimmune paleo diet for inflammatory bowel disease. And those have shown really incredible results, some cases of remission and huge symptom improvement for people uh, struggling with, with that. There's also been some research showing that it actually changes the gene expression in people with IBD in a way that reduces inflammation and improves gut health. And there's also been a clinical trial using AIP for people with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune thyroid condition. And not only did people's symptoms improve over the course of the trial, but when they did lab work, their inflammatory markers had also reduced. So those are definitely 
really exciting studies that are coming out. And we can also think about just the huge body of research showing the importance of gut health in immune function and in overall health. And that's indirectly supportive of the autoimmune paleo diet because this diet does improve gut health. That's ab absolutely, that's awesome. And, and what's beautiful in doing the work that we do, we get to see this in action on a daily basis. We, we get to see the results. And as, as important as research is, and we want to have that, that information to back up what we're doing, Clinically, it's just, it's amazing some of the results that people can achieve by adopting this simple dietary approach. We see that with people will go to their rheumatologist or their endocrinologist for, you know, autoimmune thyroid issues, for example, and they're told that the antibodies don't matter. Thyroid antibodies don't matter. Or what they need to do if they have Hashimoto's is they essentially are just waiting for the thyroid to be destroyed by their immune system. And then they'll be put on a higher dose of the thyroid hormone. So they don't believe that there any, there's anything out there that's going to change the immune response or change the, that antibody production. But we see it all the time when people are taking a functional approach, we see those antibody levels drop, which is telling us that that immune response against that gland or against that tissue is improving. And it's just so rewarding for us to see that, but it's also really rewarding for patients to see that and, and realize that what they're doing, the work they're putting in is actually paying off. So that would, thank you for explaining that. And just telling us about that research. It is important to have research. And I'm so glad to see that more people are actually completing the research regarding nutrition and, and hopefully that continues. But yeah. so just to start diving into the, the nitty gritty of an AIP diet, can you start by telling us a little bit about some of the foods that are eliminated and, uh, and why we eliminate them? Yeah, certainly. So the base, the basis of the foods that are eliminated are the same as a paleo diet, if people are familiar with that. So we're removing those refined seed oils and refined sugar. These are things that I think we would all do well to avoid as much as possible. The things like uh, soybean oil, safflower oil, canola oil, and, and refined sugar in all of its forms. And these are both quite inflammatory to the body. They're, they're things that our, our ancestors were not eating. They're very, very new parts of the diet. So we were removing those. And then as with the paleo diet, we're also removing all grains and all legumes and beans. So this is all of your gluten-containing grains, wheat, rye, barley, but also non-gluten-containing grains like rice and buckwheat and oats. And for beans, we're looking at black beans, chickpeas, lentils, peanuts. Uh, soybeans. And now AIP goes one step further and it also eliminates nuts and seeds, which also sort of fall in the same category. These are all the seed part of the plant. And so because of that, they all contain some similar, similar anti-nutrients that I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. So we've got the grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, uh, and then AIP eliminates dairy products, eggs, and nightshades. Also, alcohol and caffeine. Gotta throw those in there. So I know <laughs> it's a lot, right? So people are like, it what? Is... What does happen there? So let's talk about each one a little bit more. And obviously, the the refined seed oils. And we're just for for our listeners out there, we're going to talk a little bit more about implementation in another episode, just to make this a little bit easier to understand. But 
let's talk about the oils. You know, what are just real quick, what, what are, what are some of the problems with some of these re refined seed oils and, and what are the, the better oils that you typically will, will push people towards in the beginning? Yeah, yeah. So when we're talking about seed oils, they're often labeled vegetable oils, which kind of makes them sound healthy, but they're actually coming from seeds like uh, safflower, like soybean, like canola, that are very high in polyunsaturated fats, which are these very fragile fats. And we need a little bit of them in the diet from things like fish or flaxseed. But when we're consuming large quantities of these polyunsaturated fats and when they're in a refined form, they become very easily oxidized. And oxidized oils, when we consume them, they create oxidative damage, which is basically what our body needs antioxidants to combat. So it's sort of like a lot of stress that, that we're putting on our bodies by, by consuming those oils in large quantities. Absolutely. And, and just to help our um, listeners understand a little bit more about inflammation, because we, we talk about that and I mentioned that and you mentioned that several times. Some people just don't even know what that means. What, what is inflammation? So we're, we're, they're familiar with inflammation when you get a cut on your, on your hand, but not necessarily about the inflammation that's happening internally. Do you mind just telling a little bit about what inflammation is and, and why it's so problematic? Um, for sure. So as you said, there's that acute inflammation, like when you get a cut, it gets red and swollen. And that's a good thing. That's your body sending healing, healing nutrients there to, to heal that cut. The problem is when we have chronic low-grade inflammation, and this often isn't as obvious, but it can be things like achy joints, like fatigue. And it's often related to, to the gut because a lot, a lot of times when we have leaky gut or intestinal permeability, that's creating an inflammatory immune response. So it's basically the, the immune system responding and creating inflammatory cytokines and oxidative stress. Absolutely. All those things that damage. And it's amazing that how much food can contribute to that. And, and, and there's ways for us to measure that. We do that a lot in the clinic. We will run comprehensive lab work that really looks at inflammation because it, this is, can be a silent killer. It's not always very obvious. Some people don't know how inflamed they really are. So having that lab work can be very beneficial, but also going through this protocol, like working on the diet, you, you might think that you feel great until you reduce that inflammation. Then you realize how bad you really were feeling before. And that's just really rewarding to see. And we know sugar is a big issue and that's a weak spot for, for many people, again, due to the inflammation and the oxidative stress. I, I think sugar is the new cigarettes out there, but let's talk about caffeine and coffee. Cause that's a, that's a tough one for people. So why the heck do we need to get rid of the thing that everybody loves for short term anyway? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good question. And I, I'm glad that you pointed out that this isn't a forever thing. Foods can play a role in a healthy diet, but we just eliminate them initially. So yeah, why, why coffee and caffeine? There are a few reasons here, but the big one is the impact that caffeine has on cortisol. Cortisol is one of your body's main stress hormones, and it's the same hormone that gets released when you're in a scary, stressful situation. And what a lot of people don't realize is that drinking coffee or caffeine also triggers a release of cortisol. And so if you think about people, especially with a 
chronic health condition, but just all of us in the modern world, we're under a lot of stress and our adrenal glands are pumping out a lot of cortisol. And so it could be really helpful to step back from the caffeine consumption for at least a period of time to let that stress response come back down, let the body recalibrate, and also to be able to see where your energy levels are actually at without the artificial stimulation of the caffeine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and again, it, it can be tricky in the beginning to remove that, but usually after you get through the hump, it, it is really not a big deal. And a lot of people do feel better, but there's a lot of benefits to coffee too. So it, it's not that we're, we're, we're dogging it. It's just good to kind of give your body a break every once in a while and, and really see how you you respond when off. And we see a lot of people with anxiety or high stress or problems with insomnia they really do improve as they when they cut that out so it's 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 we all love our coffee but it's good to take a break every once in a while <laughs> yeah yeah and then when you do go back to it having it as an occasional treat and having it with right. meal also helps and choosing a really high quality one absolutely absolutely that's great and alcohol again i know that might be an obvious one for some people but what are some of the the reasons where we're removing alcohol yeah, so the body pro processes alcohol as a toxin, so it is important to keep that in mind. And it can also contribute to leaky gut or intestinal permeability, where things inside of the GI tract are passing through that gut membrane that shouldn't be and often triggering the immune system. Absolutely. And, and again, with alcohol, we see people, it's amazing to see some of the, the progress people make, especially around sleep and stress and energy just by cutting that out. I mean, that's the whole point of what we're doing is really trying to reduce that burden on the, the body and, and, and promote better detoxification and all of these things can help with that, which is awesome. And the gluten and grains, that's a tough one for people. I mean, so, you know, what, let's start by what is gluten? What, what, what is gluten and, and what are some of the things that it's in? And what are some of the other grains that people may be familiar with? Yeah, so gluten is one of the proteins in wheat and some other grains like rye and barley. And it's something that is particularly good at creating that leaky gut or that intestinal permeability. Even with people who aren't diagnosed with celiac disease, when we eat gluten, it has a tendency to separate those tight junctions between all the all the little cells lining the intestinal lining. And when those cells get separated and they become quote unquote leaky, that's when food particle, undigested food particles, endotoxins, bacteria can start to make their way through the gut lining, ones that shouldn't be doing that and get into the bloodstream and the body sees that as a threat and triggers an inflammatory immune response. So that's one of the reasons why it's really helpful to remove gluten and some of these other foods that can create that same leaky gut scenario. Awesome. And what, and what about some of the other grains? I know, what are some of the common grains that people consume and why are they so problematic? And you know, are there benefits to some of these grains as well? Yeah, definitely. So things, other grains like, like oats, like rice, like buckwheat, those are grains that don't contain gluten. But they do contain some other anti-nutrients, which they have in common with beans and to a lesser degree, nuts and seeds. Some of these are anti-nutrients that are called lectins. 
And lectins can contribute to leaky gut. They have an ability to create those little micro holes in the intestine. And then they can also contribute to something called gut dysbiosis, which is basically an overgrowth of pathogenic bacteria in the intestine or just a, a bad balance of the bacteria. And this is because they're inhibiting digestion. So when foods are not being fully digested, they're often sitting there in the digestive tract and can become food for unhealthy or problematic gut bacteria. So we've got the, the lectins, and then there's another sort of family of anti-nutrients, which are in a lot of different grains and beans. And these are enzyme inhibitors and phytic acid. So if you think about grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, these are the seed of the plant. And so from the plant's perspective, they don't want the seed to be digested, right? They would like it to pass right to us and come out in our poop and get grow into another plant. Um, and so, so nature has designed these seeds to be quite resistant to digestion. And they actually contain compounds that are, are enzyme inhibitors. What, one of the functions of our pancreas is to produce digestive enzymes, which break down the food that we eat and make it into a form that our bodies can absorb. So there's specific enzymes that break down the proteins and break those down into individual amino acids. Some enzymes break down carbohydrates so we can absorb the glucose molecules. And foods like nuts and seeds and, and grains have these enzyme inhibitors that actually stop that process from happening. So the foods aren't being fully broken down, which means that our bodies can't get the nutrition from them and can't properly absorb them. And then those undigested foods, as I mentioned earlier, can become food for pathogenic gut bacteria and create dysbiosis. It's not to say that these foods are bad across the board. A lot of traditional food preparation techniques like sprouting or soaking the grains or fermenting the grains can break down a lot of these anti-nutrients. And so for someone with good gut health, they can totally be included in the diet. And they also come along with great minerals and fiber. So it's all about finding what will work best for your individual body and doing a period of elimination, but then knowing that there's a time and a place for adding some of these foods back in. Absolutely. Absolutely. What a great explanation. So, so we, we talked a little bit about grains. We've talked about sugar and caffeine and alcohol. We talked about gluten specifically. Another a big one uh, that really seems to create a lot of uh, problems for people that is a little tough to get rid of initially is dairy. We've become very reliant on dairy and me personally, my parents own a dairy farm, so I, 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 I'm a fan of dairy and all the work the farmers do, but I've also seen some of the problems that can happen related to it. And again, it's another one of those things where it can be problematic for one person, but there's also benefits for others. So do you mind telling us a little bit about dairy and again, what you see in the clinic and why it can be problematic? Yeah, for sure. Dairy is one of those foods that is a, a top allergen food or a top food sensitivity. When we run those food sensitivity tests in the clinic, dairy is one of the foods that gets flagged for a lot of people. And so, as you said, it, it has a lot of wonderful health benefits for people who tolerate it. It can be a, a wonderful source of fat-soluble vitamins. But a lot of people, at least initially in their healing journeys, 
feel so much better when they eliminate dairy for, for a period of time. And then when you do introduce it, it's so important to choose high quality dairy. A lot of the ways even the, the cows have been bred nowadays, the casein in there is harder to digest and more inflammatory. So choosing maybe a goat's milk or a sheep's milk or some of those more heritage breed of cows for, for your milk. And then also the way it's processed makes a huge difference on how inflammatory it is. The pasteurization and homogenation of a lot of conventional dairy products makes them harder to digest. Yeah, there's definitely, definitely a role for dairy for some people in the diet, but it's helpful to avoid it initially. Right. I love how you mentioned that. I mean, there's when you are reintroducing it, when your gut is in a better place, when you're ready to try to get some of those back in, like you said, it's not that you just add it back in. There's different dairy products that may be better tolerated and maybe less inflammatory. So you mentioned that, like the heritage breeds, and that's something we're seeing more of in, in the stores, which is really exciting is seeing more of the A2 milk. So if you see the A2 milk in there, that tends to be a little bit better tolerated than some of the A1 casein products that are, that are what most dairy products have. Do you mind talking a little bit about lactose? Because some people do have problems with that in, in, ways to avoid that if that might be an issue. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the two components in dairy that are most reactive are the lactose, the milk sugar, and then the casein, the milk protein. And so lactose is a little bit easier to avoid in some ways in that a lot of dairy products have the lactose removed or, or it's been eaten by bacteria. So it's not in there anymore. So for example, something like ghee, which is clarified butter, that has the lactose completely removed and it's just the butter fat that's left. So that's a really well-tolerated dairy product for most people. It doesn't have any casein or lactose and it's actually a wonderful cooking fat. And then when you're looking at things like cheeses, usually a hard cheese, an aged cheese, won't have any lactose left in it because the aging process has the bacteria have actually consumed the, the lactose. And the same thing goes for some yogurts or kefir or cultured dairy products. It all depends on how long the culturing process has gone on for. So for example, if you make your own yogurt and you culture it for a full 24 hours, that will pretty much use up or consume all of the lactose in the yogurt. Oftentimes, though, if you're buying store-bought yogurt, there still will be some lactose in there. And certainly a milk, just a basic milk, will contain lactose. Absolutely. What about raw milk? You know, everybody's scared to use raw milk, but what are your thoughts on that? Is that something that can, is there benefits to raw milk over the pasteurized milk? That's a great question and certainly a bit controversial. I personally am a fan of raw milk. I think it all comes down to knowing your farmer, trusting the source getting really high quality raw milk, but it can be some people find that they just can't tolerate, can't digest pasteurized milk and they do great on raw milk. So if you're getting it from a good quality source, I think it really can be a great option. It contains all of the enzymes, things like the enzyme that helps to break down lactose is actually found in raw milk <laughs> that hasn't been destroyed by the heat and, and naturally occurring probiotics and that sort of thing. So I think if, if it's something people are comfortable with, it's, it's definitely worth experimenting with. I agree 100%. I, I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's frustrating that that we're, people are turned off with the pasteurization. But I think, like you said, if you know the farmer and you know how they're, 
how they're processing the, the milk and, and how the cows are and how clean everything is. It, it, you can, it can be an excellent source. And me personally, I don't do well with pasteurized milk, but I, I can do raw milk from my parents' farm and, and it just tastes so much better too. It's so good. So definitely something for people to look at. And I know in, in New Hampshire, you can buy raw milk in the stores, right? I think you can buy it here and, and then other places, you'll just have to find a, a local farmer, but but even patients in Texas or Vermont or across the country, they, there are always people who are, are selling that. And uh, I think it's a, it's a great resource. So, well, thank you for that explanation. And I know you talked a little bit about legumes or which are the beans and the lentils and the peas and the soy and how they have those lectins, which are those anti-nutrients again. But what, what about nightshades? We haven't really touched on those. Are those a little bit different? Why are nightshades problematic and really who should be avoiding those? Yeah, great question. So just for people who aren't familiar, nightshades are things like white potatoes, peppers, all your spicy peppers and your bell peppers, eggplants. And so these are all in the nightshade family and they contain something called saponins, which are a, a compound that can, again, create leaky gut. And they're also often a contributor to joint pain. I think a lot of people notice this, that they have arthritis that eating these nightshade foods really gives them symptoms. So again, for people who tolerate them, things like bell peppers can be a wonderful part of the diet, but it's all about finding your individual tolerance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in reflux, sometimes we see that with some of these more acidic nightshades, the reflux tends to be a problem with them. And it's tough. Again, what I want people to really recognize is I know we're, we're going through the details of all of this, but there is a, there's great ways to implement this dietary protocol, which we're going to talk about where it's not that difficult. I know it seems like we might be eliminating everything under the sun, but the reality is there's so many good foods that are still available and to eat and great alternative options to all of these foods that we can help people figure out. And you do such a great job with that. I didn't, we've talked about a lot of these foods. The last one I just wanted to touch on a little bit was eggs, because that's another one of people, whenever we ask them to get rid of eggs, can you talk to us a little bit about eggs? And because it's a great, another great food source and full of nutrition, but in some people, it can really be a game changer when they remove eggs. Yeah, it's true. Eggs have, especially in the egg whites, they have some proteins that are just highly allergenic, they tend to trigger the immune system. So again, if, if you tolerate them well, that's wonderful. But for a lot of people, it's helpful to eliminate them for at least 30 days, add them back in and just see how you feel. Some people do realize that they can tolerate maybe just the yolks, but not the whites or vice versa. But it is because of their sort of unique ability to activate the immune system that it's helpful to eliminate them for a period of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just to kind of recap, so for an autoimmune paleo diet, we're using that for people with inflammation or autoimmune diseases or digestive conditions, and we're eliminating really nine main food groups. So we've got the sugar, the alcohol, and the caffeine, the dairy, the grains, and the legumes, and that's what a paleo diet is. We're removing those six food groups, essentially. And then with AIP, we're also eliminating temporarily the nightshade vegetables, the eggs and the nuts and seeds. So that's a lot of stuff that we're getting rid of. So what, what do you really emphasize to patients who are, are, are starting out on this journey 
on what foods do they really want to prioritize and focus in on to make sure they are not getting into trouble by either not eating enough or not getting the right nutrients in from the foods they are consuming. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I love to focus on this with people. I think it's so important to put our emphasis on the foods that we're including more of and that we want you to be emphasizing in the diet rather than the, the foods that we're eliminating. So starting here, the, the key principle is nutrient density. This, we often forget about how important this is, but the standard American diet today is really high in calories, right? We have plenty of energy, but it's very nutrient poor. Those calories are not coming along with a lot of the vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals that our bodies actually need to function. So nutrient density is basically getting more bang for your caloric buck is a good way to think about it. So whenever I'm looking at choosing the healthiest foods, I'm thinking, you know, which foods are going to give the most concentration of these beneficial nutrients? So when we look at, for example, the plant foods, bright, colorful foods are going to, that's like a nature's way of indicating that this food has lots of vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals in it, especially your dark leafy greens. That's going to be a staple on an AIP diet. Those are full of folate and fiber and antioxidants. Also berries, brightly pigmented berries like blueberries and cranberries. Citrus fruits are another wonderful food group. All of your orange and red vegetables are going to be very high in beta carotene, which is an antioxidant. Things like sweet potatoes and carrots and winter squash. And then for the animal foods, we're thinking about choosing really high quality animal products like grass-fed, grass-finished beef and bison, wild game, if you have it available, it's fabulous. A wild-caught fish, pasture-raised poultry, like chicken and turkey. And these are going to be providing the protein, healthy fats, and also a lot of very bioavailable nutrients, like B vitamins and minerals like zinc and iron. And when we're getting those nutrients from animal sources, they tend to be the most bioavailable forms, which means they're the forms that our bodies absorb the best and utilize the best. So for example, vitamin A, we can get beta carotene in those red and orange vegetables, but our body has to convert beta carotene into vitamin A in order to, for it actually to be used by the body. Whereas if you eat something like liver, grass-fed beef liver, which is very high in vitamin A, that's already a preformed kind of vitamin A that our bodies need. So it doesn't require a conversion process. So that's why in addition to the, the protein in animal foods, they are a, a wonderful source of, of uh, micronutrients on an autoimmune paleo diet. No, I'll need more liver. <laughs> it literally has some really great ways to prepare liver so it's tolerable. I love just liver and onions, but I know a lot of people can't do that. So I love all of the different ideas you give people on how to get some of those those organ meats in because they are Absolutely. a superfood. They are. They, they really are. And you know, I think people just in our culture today, we're a little less familiar with them. We're less comfortable with them. But it is wonderful you, if you can sort of see it as an adventure, as a, an exciting new thing to try and, and experiment a bit. And the thing to remember is that they are so nutrient dense that you don't need to eat a large portion at all. A half an ounce, an ounce of liver is giving you 
tons of B12 and vitamin A and copper and, and folate. So it can be, a, can be a little side, side dish, but, but pack a lot of nutrition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what other, what other foods are you emphasizing on this? So you talked about lots of color and diversity with the uh, vegetables and the high quality meats. What about, what, are there any other foods that you're really pushing to help people get through this? Absolutely. Healthy fats are going to be really critical. I talked earlier about the vegetable oils that we want to be avoiding, but things like olive oil and coconut products, coconut oil and butter and coconut milk, those are wonderful, unprocessed, traditional sorts of fats that are high in fat-soluble vitamins and are not inflammatory. Avocados are another wonderful fat source on AIP, as are olives. And also the fats that are coming along with those high-quality, grass-fed, grass-finished, pasture-raised meat. Unfortunately, for a long time, everyone was scared away from animal fats and told that they were the cause of heart disease. And Really, the research doesn't support that. And just intuitively, if you think about our ancestors eating these animal fats for thousands of years, it doesn't really make sense that all of a sudden in the last hundred years, they would be creating heart disease. So, you know, things like the, the meat that comes or the fat that comes along with grass-fed beef, using that tallow to cook with is a great option or just the, the fats that are naturally occurring in your high quality meats will also contribute fat soluble vitamins to the diet. What would be a low quality meat or a low quality fat, you know, from, you mind talking a little bit about that? Yeah, good question. You know, and I, I just want to preface this by saying it can be really overwhelming, especially coming from a standard American diet to think that now you have to buy everything organic and everything grass fed. And I just want to say there's still a ton of benefit, even if you're, not, if you're not perfect about this and are still buying some conventional meats. Um, but that being said, the lower quality animal foods are coming from animals that are living in confined feeding operations. And they're being fed things like soybeans and genetically modified corn and often being given a lot of antibiotics because that is not what cows are supposed to be eating. And so it often makes them sick. And so the, the meat that then comes from those animals is higher in, in toxins and has a less beneficial fatty acid ratio. And it's just obviously not so great for the environment or the, the, the welfare of the animals either. That's where I'm such a big fan of, of sourcing locally and knowing your farmer so you can get really high quality products. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. Now, cutting out carbs and cutting out sugar or cutting out some of the grains, which are higher in carbs of the wrong carbs can be challenging for people. And they, they're left with cravings and just feeling like they're not getting enough. What, what are some of, are, are carbs bad altogether? Or are there certain things that we can push that do have carbohydrates, but maybe healthier? I'm so glad you brought this up because I think a lot of people unintentionally go low carb when they switch to AIP. And while that may be helpful for some people, for a lot of people, they actually need healthy whole food carbs in their diet to feel their best. And so on AIP, we're not eliminating carbohydrates. We're just switching the sources away from those flour-based products and grain-based products. And instead looking at whole food sources, things like sweet potatoes. And then here, it's not just the orange sweet potatoes, but they're actually purple sweet potatoes and white sweet potatoes. So there's a lot of variety within that. 
winter squashes like butternut squash and delicata squash are fabulous sources of carbohydrate. Root vegetables, things like parsnips and beets and turnips also have some whole food carbs. And then of course, all of the fruits and berries will provide natural sugars. And even some more unusual foods, there's something called cassava, which comes from a root, the same plant that tapioca comes from. And this is a really nice, easy to digest starch that is AIP friendly. And it's great because you can actually bake with it. You can purchase cassava flour and make tortillas with it, make other baked goods with it. And there's even a brand of pasta that is made from cassava flour. Yeah, that's been a game changer for a lot of people. Again, it's amazing how far some of these alternatives have come. I couldn't imagine doing this 15 years ago. <laughs> it, it's, it's awesome. Now, what are some of the superfoods? You mentioned that before. If you're really going to hone in on some really high quality, nutrient dense uh, foods, what, what would you really push from the superfood standpoint? Yeah. Yeah. Well, those Oregon meats that we mentioned earlier, that's got to be close to the top of the list. Uh, things like liver and heart are, are very high in, in micronutrients, but also seafood, especially things like shellfish, like oysters are incredibly high in zinc and other, other minerals. So those are definitely on the superfood list. You know, your wild caught salmon, other fatty fish like sardines, anchovies are, are fabulous. Also fermented foods. The raw lacto-fermented foods like a traditionally prepared sauerkraut or kimchi, you can even get pickled beets that are lacto-fermented. And these are great because they're raw foods, but it's sort of like amped up raw foods, even better than raw, because they have actually beneficial bacteria and enzymes that are produced during the lacto-fermentation process that makes them higher in nutrients and also adds things that help to improve digestion and gut health. Awesome. Awesome. Those are, yeah. And those are all tasty foods too. And, and you know, some of these things people just aren't even familiar with, but once they try them and they get used to them, uh, they love them. And so again, the more we can encourage those things, the better. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's a good point that even though you're eliminating a lot of foods on AIP, there are a lot of foods you can add in that you probably weren't eating before. So in some ways, it's actually expanding your diet if you experiment with some of these fermented foods or the more unusual flours or, or different cuts of meat. It can actually be expanding your diet. Absolutely. You do such a great job with helping people to, to recognize that because it makes it so much easier when, when you're not you know, thinking about what you can eat and you're just focusing on what you can. And it, it is, I mean, we have fun with it. We have fun trying new things. And I know you do too. And you know, experimenting with different recipes and sometimes you're going to fail, but a lot of times you're going to really, you're going to have great wins that you're going to utilize for the rest of your life, which is, it, and it's just an exciting process. And we, we get our kids involved too. We have them help us with the cooking and, and, and expanding their palate. And I think that's a great thing for families to, to work on doing as well. So we've talked about eliminating all of, all of these foods and some of the foods that we can use to help really make our, our nutrition more robust during this process. But what about the whole reintroduction protocol? How, how long do we typically keep patients on an AIP diet? Is it different for different situations? What, you know, what, can you talk a little bit about more about that and then how we get foods back in to see if they're problematic or not? 
Yeah, absolutely. So it really depends on the individual person. For someone with a diagnosed autoimmune condition, it probably makes sense to spend a few months on AIP before starting those reintroductions. Whereas for someone else who's using it more as just an elimination diet, a starting place, maybe 30 days. I wouldn't do less than 30 days. That's a, that's a good starting point. So, you know, thinking maybe 30 days to six weeks of uh, a baseline AIP. And then for the reintroduction phase, we don't want to, you know, ruin all the hard work that you've <laughs> gone to eliminating those foods. So we want to do this in a gradual, structured way. And this is what I help people go through. But the basic idea is that you choose some of the foods that are most likely to be tolerated well and start with one of those. And you eat that food usually several times on one day and then wait a couple of days and not eat any more of the food or any other new foods. And the idea is here is sometimes our bodies take a little bit of time to show a reaction. It's called a delayed reaction. And so by not consuming that food for a couple of days, it just gives you time to observe. Do I have a stomach ache? Do I get a headache the next day? Do I get a skin rash? And just observe, observe your body. It can be helpful to keep a journal through this process. And then if you feel like, no, I feel good. I seem to be tolerating this food well. That's great. Then you can go ahead and incorporate that food, a high quality version of it. Uh, into your diet on a regular basis. And then after a few days, you can move on to the next food that you want to try out and do the same process. One of the things that it's just so frustrating for people when they do exactly what you said, where they put all of this work into the diet and they do a great job and then they just kind of blow it at the end where they add in a bunch of different things and they feel miserable and they don't know what the heck did it. So taking your time and working with someone to to help you through this process can be crucial. So like on that note, this, this, this is, there's a lot here, right? There's a lot to this. It's very, it's easy to implement, I would say with the right resources and is, and with the right guidance. So is this something that people should try on their own or what would be some of the benefits of working with someone like yourself to, to help get them through this and figure it out? Yeah, well, I think it's always wonderful for people to be educating themselves and experimenting and trying things out. That being said, it's really helpful to have someone or have a team of people like we do at Grassroots to go through the process with you for the support, the accountability. As you said, a lot of people say, oh, I've tried AIP, but I just reintroduced everything all at once and I don't know which foods bothered me and which didn't. Working with someone, it's a lot of motivation and accountability to do that reintroduction process in a gradual way. And also there are all the resources that at Grassroots we have at our fingertips, recipes and local farms where you can source food, all these resources to provide people with. So all of that makes it just really helpful to, to have a supportive team as you're doing this process. I mean, food really, it's just... Food really is medicine, right? And, and that's why a lot of people seek us out is because we, that, that's our, one of our main philosophies here is really to give the body the nourishment it needs to heal. And oftentimes it does heal if you're feeding it with the right nutrition and, and removing those inflammatory triggers that are preventing healing from occurring. And, and everybody's different. The point AIP is not for you to be on, like I said, not for the rest of your life. Or the, one of the main goals of AIP is to figure out what foods 
fuel your body and what few foods may trigger an inflammatory response. And, and that's going to vary for, you know, based on each person. So going through this carefully can really change your life. And on that note, do you, can you share a patient story of someone who has really used food as medicine and, and saw a change in their health? It's always nice to be able to put a real life situation with, with what we're talking about. Yeah, certainly. Oh, I see people every day who are having symptoms reverse and feeling better and feeling more energy as they change the way they eat. But there's a, a young woman who comes to mind specifically who came in with really crippling arthritis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And she could, she had trouble walking and she also had a lot of digestive symptoms, alternating diarrhea and constipation and skin rashes. And she dove right into AIP, did a wonderful job implementing the diet. And within a few weeks, she was having more energy. Her skin rashes had cleared up. Her bowel movements were more regular. And after two months on the diet, she said her joint pain had reduced by 65%. And for the first time ever, she was able to walk downstairs straight rather than having to walk downstairs sideways, which she had always had to do before. And it was just so inspiring to hear that change in her life, her quality of life, and knowing that she had been the one to put in the effort to make those changes and, and was seeing such incredible results. That's incredible. That's incredible. And I, I know this patient that you're talking about. And another thing that your listeners really need to know is this is someone who has suffered for many, many years with rheumatoid arthritis and has tried a variety of uh, medications and, and hardcore medications at that for the rheumatoid arthritis and just left feeling like she had no, nowhere else to go or nothing else to do because her conventional doctors weren't giving her any options. And it was, it's just so rewarding to see what can be accomplished by using food as, as medicine and by taking a holistic approach. And, and it's just, it's, I love it. And I know you do too. It's just so, so rewarding. Thank you so much for this, Lily. This has been an excellent overview of not only what an autoimmune paleo diet is and how to implement it, but just about nutrition and the power of, of what can happen through eating the right diet and through the, eating the right foods and, and just getting some hope too that this is possible. Anybody can do this with the right guidance. What I'm really excited about for those of you who are listening is that we're actually going to record another episode focusing more so on practical application of an autoimmune paleo diet. So we talked a lot about theory today and you know what it is, the science behind it, how to incorporate it, but we're going to really jump into the, the practical ways that allow you to be successful with this approach. And uh, I'm just really excited about that episode as well. So make sure you, you check that out. And again, Lily, thank you so much for all of the hard work you do. Again, it's just, it's so rewarding in to have you on our team and to, to see the amazing changes that people and patients can see uh, through this approach. And uh, we're just so Glad to have you here at Grassroots, and I look forward to the next podcast with you. Oh, well, thank you. I've had a great time this morning, and I look forward to recording part two. Awesome. Well, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you.